This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Associate Professor Andrew Godwin, Principal Fellow at the Melbourne Law School, joined me to explore the fascinating life and work of William Arquette. Born in 1876, William Arquette was Australia's first barrister of Chinese heritage. He was widely admired and a fierce advocate for Chinese Australians, defending them against racial discrimination. Then, Eliza Hull joined me to discuss her edited anthology by Parents with a Disability. It's called We've Got This, Stories by Disabled Parents. Eliza joined me to talk about what life is really like as a disabled parent in Australia, both the joys and the complexities. Then, finally, Emeritus Professor Marco Pavlishin, an expert in Ukrainian studies at Monash University, joined me to discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the historical and political context of the conflict, as well as what's actually happening at the moment. It's particularly wonderful to be joined by Dr Andrew Godwin. He is a lawyer and he's also based at the Melbourne Law School, which is from the University of Melbourne. He's an associate professor there and a principal fellow. And he's actually going to be chatting with me about a topic that is really, really interesting. And I've got to say, I can't wait to hear from him tomorrow with his public lecture on the same subject, which you will also be able to attend if you find yourself interested and want to know more. That's going to be tomorrow at the Melbourne Law School, both in person and online. And I'll give you the details of that at the end of this conversation. But we're going to be discussing the life and story of William Arquette, who was Australia's first barrister of Chinese heritage. He was actually born in regional Victoria in Wangaratta in 1876 and studied law at the University of Melbourne. He has a really wonderful career, which we're going to jump into, but also a really fascinating personal life as well and a life dedicated to combating the discrimination that was absolutely present in formal and informal ways. Uh, against Chinese people and Chinese Australians and Asian Australians more broadly, of course. And another thing that is so interesting about William Arquette is that he was truly a trailblazer. He was really the only barrister of Chinese heritage for a very long time here in Victoria. So I welcome Dr Andrew Godwin now, who's joining me. Hi there, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming onto the program. You're welcome, Amy. Thanks so much for having me on the program and also for promoting the lecture that I'll be delivering tomorrow. It's really wonderful to hear that the heritage of both the law school and the Victorian Bar is being highlighted, but particularly through the case study of William Arquette, who, when you look at his life story, it really is such a a perfect story to look through the history of both Chinese Australians in the 19th century and early 20th century, but also those in the legal profession. So I'm really interested in exploring his life in more detail. But I did want to first up ask you uh, in particular, and I, I know that you lived in China for 10 years, so you yourself are really familiar with Chinese culture and the Chinese language, but I wondered how you first came to know William Arquette and what drew you to his story. I'd always had an interest in the history of the Chinese in Victoria, Amy, and 
I always reflected on how significant the Chinese were in Australia. Their forebears came to Australia many, many years before mine did. Every Australian town has an Australian uh, has a Chinese restaurants. You'll find Chinese people uh, memorialised in cemeteries around Australia. A lot of them, of course, came during the mid-19th century as part of the gold rush. Um, so it was really through my interest in the Chinese in Victoria, uh, my long-standing interest in Chinese culture and Chinese language. And um, it was really through those um, interests that I came to develop a very strong research focus on William Marquette. But my um, formal research project, if you like, commenced back in 2019 when I travelled to Canberra to a ceremony at the High Court of Australia, which featured the Chief Justice who um, gave the keynote address at the William Arquette Scholarship in 2019. I'd heard a little bit about William Arquette, but I hadn't really appreciated just how significant he was until I attended that award ceremony. And just by uh, coincidence, I sat next to one of the members of today's generation of Arquettes. And that's really how my interest developed. And since 2019, I've been reading up about William Arquette. I've been looking at all the archives. I've been helping um, the executor of his younger daughter to edit a biography that she did of her father that we're hoping to publish uh, in the not-too-distant future. And I've also been looking at um, the impact that William had on the legal profession and the work he did in the courts, the cases in which he appeared. One case in particular is still cited as good law today, uh, that was a high court case called Potter and Minahan. And so it's been a real delight for me to embark on this journey of discovery, particularly given my interest in, in China, in things Chinese. And um, it's remarkable when you think about William's story because he is a great example of diversity. Back in the late 19th century, early 20th century, and indeed, as uh, pointed out by Peter Yule, who recently published a uh, history of the Victorian bar, William was the, the first non-European barrister, or the only non-European barrister in the first 120 years of the Victorian bar. So you can start to appreciate just what a trailblazer he was, as you mentioned in your lead-in, and just how important it is for Australians to to become familiar with the contribution of the Chinese, the extent to which they've been part of the very fabric of our society, and how remarkable their contribution has been, particularly in areas relating to diversity. Oh, absolutely. And I myself was really shocked to hear about the fact that the next person of Asian heritage who was admitted to the bar uh, in Victoria came many, many decades later. So William Arquette really was, as you've just mentioned there, and as I said, a trailblazer, with William Lai being the second ethnic Chinese person to join the bar in 1988, 84 years after Arquette did. So, yeah, it is really surprising, but then I guess not so surprising when we think about the bar and also the fact that gender diversity has been such a challenge uh, in the Victorian bar for many years as well. So all kinds of diversities has been something that the bar has struggled with. And it is a very elite group to join, isn't it? In the sense that you're joining a group of 
highly esteemed lawyers who are very well networked and who really do bank on their own legal reputation in order to get new cases, in order to to climb the career ladder. So it is a very um, interesting profession to have joined. Indeed. Uh, you mentioned William Lai. Uh, William, together with Can Chong, another barrister of Chinese uh, background, they were the first two barristers of Chinese origin to be appointed QCs, Queen's Council or Senior Council in the state of Victoria. And so William himself, William Light himself uh, holds that honour of being one of the first two barristers to be appointed Silk or Queen's Counsel. And indeed, uh, one barrister whom William knew quite well, although she was quite a bit younger than William, and I'm talking here about William Marquette, was Joan Rosenose, who was the um, first woman in the state of Victoria to be appointed Silk. And so back in the days when William was admitted to the bar in 1904, it was an exclusively male domain and it was very much an exclusively European profession in which um, a lot did ride on your connections, your background, the extent to which you could develop relationships with solicitors who instructed you. And it's also, I think, really interesting to note that back in those days, the bar was much smaller than it is today. So when William entered the profession, he may have been, say, one of, um, well, his role number was 88. So he was the 88th barrister to be admitted to the role of the Victorian bar. And uh, this is an interesting point to note of itself. Um, 88, as many people would know, is a very auspicious number from a Chinese cultural perspective. And a friend of mine, Julian McMahon, who's um, a barrister and quite well-known to people, given that he was Victorian of the Year and also his role in defending the um, Australians on death row in Indonesia. Julian, it was Julian who pointed out to me that uh, William's bar number was 88. And we thought, well, that's remarkable. How did that come about? I did a bit of research, mainly by looking at the barristers who were enrolled immediately before and after William Arquette. And it appears to me that what happened was the three of the barristers got together and assisted William to get this auspicious number 88 because the one before him was admitted the previous weekday and the one after him was admitted the following weekday. And if you look at all of the dates on which other barristers had signed up to the role, it was they were really separated by periods of weeks or months. And so I think there must have been some coordination to enable William to get that lucky number 88. But, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, he was the first uh, non-European and remained so for 120 years until um, William Lyon Cantrong came along. And so it's an interesting point to note, given, given the increasing diversity in the profession today. It was really interesting, I think, to read about or read off one of the quotes in an article that is up on the Melbourne Law School's website by yourself where you referenced a kind of light-hearted conversation between William Arquette and Joan Rosanove QC, who was uh, the first Jewish woman in Australia to be admitted as a barrister. And you quote this conversation as being between Arquette and Joan and he said to her, you and I have both chosen the wrong profession, Joan. We will never satisfy our ambitions. Neither of us will ever be made a judge. You because you are a woman. I because I am Chinese. We should have done medicine. 
which is still funny to me to think that yes. that's a joke now, that <laughs> we should have done medicine. <laughs> that's right. No, I think uh, it's, it's fortunate now that uh, things have changed and um, the current Chief Justice of Victoria, uh, Chief Justice Ferguson, is uh, the second woman to hold that position, the first one being Marilyn Warren. We have um, a, a female Chief Justice of the High Court of Australia, Chief Justice Kiefel. And so women really do, um, in many respects, outrank men in the legal profession today. In fact, I think the majority of graduates from law school uh, are women. That's a good thing, of course. But in addition to the need to redress certain gender imbalances, it's also important, of course, to look at uh, diversity in terms of ethnicity. And a lot of people have been um, making a lot of effort to put us on, on the track of appointing more people of uh, Asian ethnicity and other ethnicities to the bench and um, to expand and build upon the diversity that we're, we're enjoying today. And it is really important to go back to what you said at the beginning of this chat, which is that the Chinese people who came across largely from Canton in southern China in the, well, for example, the gold rush period, but they certainly did come to Australia earlier than the gold rush period even. We're talking about here the mid-19th century in particular when thousands upon thousands of Chinese came across to seek fortune on the gold fields. But they were the second largest ethnic group here in Victoria and, as you said, have made an immense contribution to Australian society for centuries. And it's kind of surprising to me that given that strong contribution and that so many numerous people who did stay, uh, many thousands did go back to China, but also thousands did stay here and uh, many did choose to become naturalised British subjects of the colony of Victoria in the 19th century. And, you know, those people and their descendants are still here today. As you say, you're still working with the descendants of William Arquette. So I'd really love to go back to the start of William Arquette's life and talk a little bit about his father and his mother, particularly because his mother was Chinese. And that was a very, very rare circumstance at the time, because pretty much the majority of people coming across from China were male. And in fact, of the roughly 25,000 Chinese in Victoria in 1857, only three were women. And then in 1861, there were eight Chinese women settled in Victoria. And in 1871, there were still only 31 Chinese women. So William Arquette's mother was a real standout in the sense that it was such a, a kind of rare thing for a Chinese woman to come here and um, to settle with a partner, that of her husband, Marquette. Absolutely. William's father, Marquette, had come out here as a young man, I think in his 20s, to serve as a community leader amongst the Chinese workers on the gold fields in northeastern Victoria. And as you mentioned, Amy, a lot of the uh, diggers, those who came out to mine for gold, had the intention of coming out temporarily, generating, earning some money for their families back home. And ultimately, of course, they were hoping to return to China. But of course, many of them ended up staying in Australia and ended up marrying uh, non-Chinese wives. And as you noted, there were very few uh, females amongst the community. So it was 
quite unusual that uh, William's father was able to marry his Chinese wife. William's father had actually come from a region in Guangdong province in southern China called the uh, Taishan. It's a village called Taishan or a region called Taishan. And many of the gold miners had come from southern China. Um, and they came out here not just to mine for gold, but they also came out here to work in tin mining in places like Tasmania. And in fact, the tin mining, I think, preceded the gold mining that really took off in the middle of the 19th century. So just a bit of information about his parents. Um, and this is an interesting point to note because people often ask me, how did William come by his name, Arquette? And my theory is that his surname came uh, literally from his father's name, which was Marquette. So just to tell you what these words mean in Chinese, Ma is the surname, and the character Ma in Cantonese or Ma in Mandarin means wheat. And Ket in Cantonese or Ji in Mandarin means auspicious. And William's name in Chinese, the Chinese name that his father and mother gave him is Xixiang, which consists of two characters. The first one means tin, and the second one means auspicious, which I think picks up the meaning of his father's given name. And so what I think happened in terms of how William came to have the surname Arquette is that I think initially people referred to him as William Marquette, but eventually the M dropped off. And that could have been because people assumed that the R in Arquette was the same as the R or O uh, that appeared in other anglicised Chinese surnames, such as Ohoi, where this R or O is a diminutive, um, a prefix that's used before the surname to indicate familiarity. It's similar, if you like, to calling James Young James or Jim Old Jim, except that it's usually placed before the surname in Chinese. So... Uh, William had a Chinese name, namely Xixiang, meaning auspicious pin, if you like, and his surname was, in Chinese, was Mai, or Ma in Cantonese pronunciation. Now, as I mentioned, his father had come out here to work as a community leader and had acted as an interpreter for the workers on the gold fields, and in that capacity had assisted the Chinese with their interactions with society, including the legal system, the courts and the law generally. And it's said that William, as he grew older, used to help his father uh, with his work. And so one can understand why old Marquette had had aspirations for William to become a lawyer and a community leader. Now, William's mother has origins that are less clear. Um, we don't know, for example, exactly when she came out to Victoria um, or indeed from which part of China she came. It's expected that she would have come from southern China. But um, she came out when she was very young. I think she had the first of eight children when she was very young. William was the only son of seven daughters, eight children altogether. And so William was very much part of a very female-oriented family. And I think that was important in terms of developing the diversity that William tried to promote throughout his career. But his mother had quite a tragic um, life, at least in her final years, because she suffered from mental challenges, mental health challenges. And some people think that that was simply postnatal depression, but back then that sort of thing was diagnosed as um, a form of madness and she was 
sent to the Beechworth Asylum, where she finished her final years and died. And um, somewhat poignantly, William's father died less than a week after his mother had said uh, that he, he died of a broken heart. It must have been quite difficult for William because he was 20 at the time both of his parents died. But um, he did grow up in a family of um, sisters who uh, cared for William, adored William, and I think did their best to support William as he developed his plans to come to Melbourne to study and to develop his legal career. And I've been very privileged, Amy, in uh, meeting and getting to know the descendants of three of William's sisters, Ada, Rose and Matilda, uh, alongside the only descendant now who's got the surname Arquette, and that's Boston Arquette, William's great-granddaughter. And uh, William himself married a non-Chinese wife, Gertrude Bullock, who was of Scottish origin. And uh, together they had two sons and two daughters. The elder son, Stanley, did law at Melbourne University, but his career tragically was cut short because he was killed in the Second World War. The younger son, also called William, ended up doing medicine and had two sons himself, one of whom is Blossom's father. And one thing to note, well, I think there are a couple of things to note about his daughters. The elder daughter, Maylan, married Len Williams, and they produced uh, John Williams, the great Australian guitarist. Mm-hmm. And his younger daughter, Toylan, spent many years of her life writing a biography of her father, and that's the biography on which, um, as I mentioned before, the executor of Toyland's estate and I and a couple of others are currently working. So um, that's a bit of background about William and his, his parents. I'm very excited to hear about that biography. It's going to be clearly a really interesting thing to be able to read, given Toylan clearly would have had such a deep knowledge of William Arquette. And I am particularly interested in also looking at Arquette. And I mean, I was surprised to hear or read that he spoke both Cantonese and Mandarin when he was a teenager and assisting his father in court interpreter-type roles, mainly because I know that so many mostly spoke Cantonese. But I wonder, his upbringing, it sounds like he was very much supported to have such a deep and highly educated experience both in the English culture of the time but also the Chinese culture. Yes, his, his parents arranged for a private tutor to teach him or educate him in Chinese and the classics. And one expects that uh, he would have developed his Mandarin knowledge during the course of um, working with his private tutor. But he was quite uh, adept at languages, Amy. He studied French, Greek, Latin, and, of course, English at school. And he was a very well-read and very learned lawyer, who was very happy to quote extracts from Shakespeare, extracts from uh, Robbie Burns, the um, poet, and also Gilbert and Sullivan in his addresses to the court uh, during court proceedings. So he was a very colourful personality in that sense, and he drew on his knowledge of language and literature generally to um, inform his work and also as part of his oratory skills, um, advocacy skills in court. And one thing that I often reflect on is that he was great mates of Robert Menzies, the 12th Prime Minister of Australia, who was younger than he was, but um, 
worked as a barrister in the same chambers where William had his room. And it said, and there's evidence to suggest, I think, that um, Menzies modelled his oratory skills after William, um, after observing William in court. Uh, he was a very good cross-examiner and he was also renowned for being a great settler of cases. He encouraged litigants to settle and he was very, very skillful at supporting that. And I think that is partly a product of his Chinese culture and the extent to which um, a win-win situation is always better than a win-lose situation. And he developed quite a, quite a strong reputation for being a great settler of cases. Mm. Well, it does sound like he was very forward thinking in that regard, given where the legal profession has gone in terms of seeking that kind of conciliatory outcome. I did really love the quote from Sir Robert Menzies uh, from his 1970 book, The Measure of the Years, which is quoted. And it is quite revealing, isn't it, when he's talking of William Arquette. He says, William Arquette did not ever sit on the bench, though he would have been a very competent judge. He was a sound lawyer and a good advocate. His keen sense of fun was concealed behind an almost immovable mask. He was considerably senior to me, but we were great friends. It certainly does say a lot about William Marquette that he influenced the longest serving prime minister and, and a very significant figure in the founding of the Liberal Party. Indeed. Uh, and I think in William we find somebody who successfully bridged the gap, if you like, between the East and the West and who spent his life, um, or much of his life, working towards reconciliation, building bridges, and highlighting the extent to which um, the West is really not too different from the East. We might do things differently, but ultimately we share the same aspirations. So, yes, um, William was never appointed to the bench, and when you think about it, back in those days, it would have been quite inconceivable for... A, a person of Asian origin to be appointed to the bench, to be appointed a judge. And even today, of course, I think there are really only a handful of people, if that, who have been appointed to the bench of at least the senior courts in Australia. And so I think what uh, William said to Joan, um, we'll never be appointed judges, we should have done medicine, was a reflection of reality. But, you know, I don't think William ever saw that as an impediment in terms of what he was trying to achieve. I think he was very pragmatic and realistic about what his lot in life would be. I think he had a bit of a fatalistic approach to life. The Chinese have a word, yuan fen, which means really destiny. And there are some things that you have to leave to destiny. And I think William was very happy to do that. According to his uh, family, he never really made an issue of the extent to which he may have been affected himself by racism or discrimination. He, he rose above that and did his best to bring everyone together. Uh, and this can be seen both in the involvement that he had in the Chinese community, but also in the involvement in the mainstream. So, for example, he was a great Freemason and made a lot of uh, non-Asian friends through Freemasonry. But he also was a leader in the Chinese community. He established uh, an association called the Chinese Australian Association with uh, somebody called Ni Hao uh, Moy, who was the son of Louis um, Moy, who has come to be known in many contexts as the father of the Chinese in Victoria. He was a very early immigrant who came out in the 1850s, I think. 
And uh, Ni Hao was the first Chinese Australian to train as an architect. So William lived alongside a number of other prominent Chinese who uh, were trailblazers, and um, they all worked together to represent the interests of the Chinese and to um, help the Chinese integrate in the broader community. And I think that's one thing that the Chinese have always been very good at doing, integrating with the broader community, and Australia is is all the better for that. I'm really interested to hear about Mihao because um, he's come up in my own research and sounds like a really interesting character. And I know the Armois themselves are a very big family and had many different contributions to Melbourne society. I really love your point about Willie Marquette realising, you know, what his destiny would be and what the limitations might be on his career, given the racial discrimination that existed for so many Chinese Australians. And in particular, I was really interested, and I'd love to hear more from you about William Marquette and some of those cases that you, you referenced earlier, because I know that he appeared before the High Court of Australia at least 12 times between 1905 and 1928 and was involved in some of those significant cases where he was um, pushing back against discrimination and uh, the very much discriminatory legislation that existed of the time. So I wonder if you could share some of those stories that you feel highlight his contribution in that area. Sure. Well, I think there are two cases that uh, I might mention that reflect William's involvement in fighting against uh, discriminatory legislation. The first is the one I mentioned before, namely Potter and Minahan. And this involved a, a young man who was, I think, 25 years old when the case came before the courts. His surname was Minahan, and he was born of a Chinese father and a European mother. And at the age of five, he returned to China with his family and spent the next 20 years of his life in his father's village in China before his father died. He subsequently returned to Australia, but um, when he came to Australia, he was required to do the notorious dictation test to prove that he understood English. Um, and he unfortunately failed the test because he'd grown up in a Chinese-speaking environment and he was declared an unlawful immigrant. And William Arquette went in to fight for him and what came to be determined by the court was the question of whether if you'd been born in Australia, you were therefore a British subject or a subject of a British dominion that had the right of entry even if you'd left the country at the age of five and returned 20 years later. And so this, the High Court ultimately accepted William's argument that the legislation never intended to discriminate against people who'd been born in Australia in this way. And the High Court made it clear that uh, such rights could only ever be taken away in very clear terms. And so that's one case in which William assisted somebody who may have been thrown out of Australia if uh, William hadn't been around to take on his case. The other case I'd mention is um, quite uh, an interesting one. It, it concerns the interpretation of a provision of the Factories and Shops Act of 1905. And what happened here, under this legislation, all Chinese furniture makers had to affix a label on their furniture to the effect that it was made by Chinese so that people presumably could decide whether or not they wanted to buy it. But um, also the legislation limited the hours within which or during which 
people in Chinese factories could work. And so it was discriminatory in the sense in that it was directed at the Chinese. And um, in, in this case in which William appeared, the owner of the Chinese laundry had been charged with an offence for permitting a lodger to iron a shirt during the prohibited hours. And uh, to cut a long story short, Arquette in the Supreme Court of Victoria and ultimately in the High Court of Australia on appeal successfully argued that the lodger had in fact been ironing his own shirt and that wasn't an offence under the Act as it uh, didn't constitute work that was ordinarily done in the factory within the terms of the legislation. So those are two cases that highlighted what you might refer to today as public interest cases in which William had, had acted defending the rights of Chinese Australians against this discriminatory legislation. Yeah, and it is really, really great that he's left behind that legacy, but also that we can even access some of his own writing and his own advocacy. Uh, I know there's a, a paper on the Chinese and Factories Acts that he wrote, which you can access on Trove. And um, and I know that he's also delivered a really interesting lecture on Western and Eastern culture and uh, Confucianism. And uh, he's clearly, as we've been talking about, a really well-rounded and very uh, cultured person and a deep thinker, someone who's been reflecting on you know these questions of life and also clearly of racial discrimination. Just finally, I wanted to to talk about another part of his life, his wife Gertrude and the courtship that they had, because it was at the time quite a difficult thing to be able to have a, a kind of mixed race relationship in, you know, those times in the 20th century. And he, you know, had his heart set, it sounds like, on Gertrude and and did everything he could in in a sense to actually marry her in the end. And I wondered if you could just share with us a bit about that and and the experiences they had being someone of a Chinese heritage and also a a European heritage and how they've combined, you know, their families and their cultures. Certainly. Uh, As as you mentioned, Amy, it was really quite quite unusual for a person of Asian background to marry a person of European background back then. Um, I think William had fallen in love with Gertrude the moment he set his eyes on her. Um, and that was at a church in a church hall in which it's recorded that he said to the friend he was with at the time, if I'm going to marry, that's the lady I'd like to marry. And what happened following that was that he got talking to her and he invited her out for, you know, a, a walk in the park. And uh, they courted secretly uh, for four years before um, he plucked up the courage to ask her father for consent to marry her. And initially, Gertrude's father was very resistant and didn't want to have his daughter marrying an anti-Oriental, so to speak. But interestingly, uh, Gertrude's family, her mother, her sister, were quite horrified that the father had um, revealed this attitude. And indeed, it was Gertrude's boss or ultimate boss in the insurance company in which she worked as a secretary, a very prominent businessman, who heard about um, William and Gertrude. And in fact, the insurance company had instructed William in some cases. And so they were very familiar with William and admired William. And so this very prominent businessman went along to see Gertrude's father, who was also quite a prominent businessman, and said, look, I think you've got to um, rethink this because William's a very good person 
then there's no reason why your daughter shouldn't shouldn't marry. And so Gertrude's father eventually relented. He did try to um, impose on them a an engagement period of a year or two, but William said, with all due respect, uh, sir, I've waited long enough and um, mm-hmm. we'd like to get married right away. And they were very keen to get married because not long after they married, William travelled to China with Gertrude to attend the elections for the Parliament of the New Republic of China. That was in 1912. And so that's when their marriage commenced. And um, it was reported in the press uh, because it was quite a story for somebody like Gertrude to travel to China. And so there was almost as much interest in what Gertrude had done in China as um, the activities in which William had been involved. So really, as you mentioned at the start, Amy, William and Gertrude were both trailblazers and many, many people since then have been um, blazing their own trail. And we need to be more aware, I think, of the tremendous uh, contribution that Chinese have made to Australia. And we need to celebrate their lives and that I consider myself privileged to be able to do so in relation to William Marquette. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more, Andrew. And I know that we've just scratched the surface of what you're going to cover in your rare book lecture, which is going to be held at the Melbourne Law School, which is on 185 Pelham Street in Carlton. And it is also going to be streamed online. So it means you can go in person or if you're unable to attend in person, um, you can do so virtually. And it's going to be held tomorrow between 6pm and 7pm. And as I said, it's presented by yourself, Dr Andrew Godwin, and it's free to attend. So all you need to do is to register. And uh, yeah, I want to say a big thank you to you, Andrew, for drawing our attention to William's life and his contributions. And I really hope that people can understand this even more and uh, engage with your lecture tomorrow to get the full spectrum of his amazing contributions. Thanks very much, Amy. It's been a great pleasure to share my passion for and enthusiasm in William Marquette with you and your listeners. Uh, And thanks very much for helping us to promote the, the lecture. Oh, it's my pleasure. I've just been chatting with Dr Andrew Godwin and uh, he, as I said, is based at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne. He's a principal fellow and associate professor and has been researching the life and work of William Arquette since 2019. And as you've been listening and hearing about, William Arquette was Australia's first barrister of Chinese heritage. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Eliza Hull, who is the person who has been spearheading this wonderful project, which has many forms or many um, ways that it's been expressed in the world. The latest edition of it is through a book. It is called We've Got This, Stories by Disabled Parents, and it's a collection of essays and interviews by Eliza, essays predominantly written by those who are disabled parents, and also then Eliza has translated some of these conversations she's had into essays by them as well. So it's really wonderful to get such a breadth and depth of experience from people who consider themselves to be disabled or have a chronic illness and that are also parents, and to find out about how they have navigated parenting, uh, but also navigating a world that is very, very 
hostile in some regards to their needs in terms of accessibility, but also just in terms of acceptance and understanding that everyone is different and that being a parent with a disability is a challenge, but it's also a great strength and it shows through in the stories here that Eliza has put together. So um, Eliza, if you're unfamiliar with her, is a contemporary musician, a disability advocate and a writer based in regional Victoria and, as I said, has edited this book, We've Got This, which is out through Black Ink today. I welcome Eliza onto the program now. Hi there, Eliza, and thank you so much for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Well, I've got to say I um, really, really, really found this book essential reading and I'm upfront disclosure, not a parent, but I did find this book so universal in the sense of understanding human experience and also particularly from the perspective of disabled parents. And I really appreciated the time that you had clearly taken to bring in so many diverse experiences, not just in terms of the types of disabilities that people have, but also their other intersecting identities. So a big congratulations, first of all, on this book, because it is a real feat. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I was also glad to hear that, you know, this is something that you have really been focusing on for quite a while. And, you know, you write about that in the introduction to this book in your own essay about not only your personal experiences, but also the fact that that has spurred you on having created an audio series called We've Got This with the ABC. It sounds like something that you have really wanted to to pick up. So I wanted to, I guess, ask that as a first question. Why have you sought to ensure that people like yourself are represented? And what were some of the motivations? There are obvious motivations, clearly, but I just wanted to get your personal motivations for it. Yeah, so I really was, it was all due to uh, me deciding to have a child. And I'm a proud disabled person. I have a physical condition called Charcot-Mari Tooth. And so it affects the way that I walk. I walk differently and fall over, so can't get upstairs. And I've been disabled since I was five. But when I decided to embark on the parenting journey, I went to my neurologist and was met with discrimination. And he really questioned my ability to parent. At that moment, I really had nowhere to go and I felt very alone in my decision to parent and realised that there just wasn't anything out there that represented parents with disability in an accurate way. And so that was really where the idea to create the audio series came from. But ultimately, I, I just desperately wanted to make a book and I'm so glad that Black Ink decided to take this book on and give it a life because it really was the book that I... I was seeking stories that make me, you know, realise that it is possible to be a parent with disability and I, I really hope that that's what this book achieves, that it's really for any person with disability wondering about parenting. Um, but I also, as you said, it, it's also for non-disabled people because, A, it's a great education tool, but... It's also just human stories. Like I think that they're really interesting and thought-provocative stories that really capture um, what it means to be disabled and what it means to be a parent. Yeah, and these two experiences combine in really, really interesting ways and every story is vastly different and that's why I found it just so informative because 
I have a feeling that even anyone with, for example, one type of disability might find it particularly interesting to understand how someone with a, a very different disability might experience parenting and the differences between someone who perhaps has autism versus someone who is deaf or blind and the types of challenges that they have come up against, but also what they've discovered to have been a really positive part of their life. And I think what came through or shone through for me in this book was that becoming a parent seemed to have changed many people's relationship to their disability, often Mm. in a positive way. And often when there was a lot of shame that's talked about before becoming a parent and having a disability. A lot of people seem to have become more proud of their disability and and to kind of have been able to embrace it more, presumably because they've had to experience parenting in front of other parents with their own children who ask very direct, blunt questions at times, very entertaining questions sometimes as well, about why their parent is different to the other parents. So I, I really was interested in that relationship with one's disability and how that evolves for different people in the book. And maybe it'd be great to hear from you personally first in terms of, you know, your physical disability. And I know that you recount one of the stories from your own experience where your child said, mummy, why do you walk like a penguin? And, (laughs) you know, and that was really cute, but also like it does bring up some of those real experiences for you that you recount in that introduction. So I wonder if you could share with us your experience to your own disability and how that might've changed when you had a child. Yeah, I think that's like a really great reflection. So thank you for that. I think you're right. I think a lot of these parents in, in within this book actually having children is what enabled us to be disability proud. And so I think due to lack of representation in the media and societal belief around disability, a lot of us have internalised ableism and unfortunately have viewed ourselves as less than or othered ourselves from the wider community. And having children actually, I think it's just, you know, when you have a child, you realise that it's really important to be yourself and be authentic and model that for your children because you want them to be themselves and you want to create a space where they feel like they can be whoever they want to be. And so having my children was really the start of me, I guess, yeah, owning who I am and not being afraid. And I have to say it's been such an incredible weight lifted (laughs) to speak about it openly and not hide because for so long I would hide and and not walk in front of people or just be so afraid that I was going to be stared at or prayed for on the street or laughed at. And now I just don't feel that shame anymore. So, yeah, I think think you're right. I think that's definitely a common thread within the book that a lot of these parents now are uh, proud of their disability and that was created by having children. Mm. And I know that that sense of pride seems to translate across to the children themselves who also say proudly, and as you quoted in your introduction, your own child, your daughter, now when asked, always says proudly, my mum has a disability. And that's also something that comes up in other people's stories is that the children are very proud to say what type of disability their parent has or they're very, very upfront about it and proud about it. And it seems that that type of 
understanding and empathy and caring nature that is facilitated when you're being so close to your child and sharing very frankly what your experiences are. And sometimes it's, you know, involuntary because that's just like how it is. It's you don't really have much control over the situation in terms of how your disability might be affecting you at that moment. And it's better to be honest with children, as many people in the book have reflected and to treat them like they can handle, you know, a lot of these issues. But it was really interesting to see the development of the children and how the children are going to hopefully combat some of that discrimination and that poor understanding of disability. And to hopefully, as many people have written in this book, to change perceptions and as I can't remember who said it but you know children are the future and these are the people who are going to be changing the ableism that is just rife throughout society so I really love to understand your observations of your own children and how they might have changed and Mm. and be different in a way to their peers in the sense of maybe educating their peers. Yeah absolutely I think that's very true you're spot on that children are the future And I definitely saw that happen when I was uh, in the kindergarten line and I had another parent with their child. The child was being curious and just said, why does she walk like that? And at that point, I really wanted to step in and and discuss disability. But the parent knew that I had a disability because we'd spoken about it, but instead said that I'd been in a terrible accident. And I just, you know, I didn't want to undermine that parent, so I went along with it. But I remember walking into the kinder with my daughter, and she said, "That's, that's not true. You you have a disability. Like you're 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 proud of your disability." My daughter said to me, and I realised then that that's really there isn't stigma around disability in our home, and because we talk about it and. We do so in a way that's curious and kind that, yeah, it's just that there there really isn't any stigma around disability. And I think that each of these families prove that having a a diverse family where disability is celebrated and not seen as a deficit creates children that are open and kind and inclusive, ultimately. Mm. And so I think that that is definitely the you know, the biggest positives of having a family that has disability in it. And then more than 15% of households in Australia have have at least one parent with disability, whether that be chronic illness or parents that are deaf or parents that are neurodivergent. So, yeah, a lot of families have a parent with disability. And I think the more that we have these conversations and speak about it and I don't don't really like to use the word normalise, but I will in this, uh, you know, normalise disability, that the better that we are and and diversity does make this world beautiful. Absolutely, it does. And it's interesting also part of what comes up in this book is the difference and also similarities between the experiences of those who've acquired a disability or a chronic illness and then those who were born with a disability or perhaps have a genetic component to their disability. And that comes up in a lot of the stories is this discrimination against particularly those who have a genetic component to their disability because they're met with at every turn, particularly during pregnancy, these discussions about, well, should you be passing this potentially on to your offspring? And there's this huge amount of judgment. And 
concern that's put on the parent around, well, is the child quote unquote healthy and are Mm -hmm. they going to be different like you? And it brings up so many experiences and and emotions for the people who are writing. And I know you also referenced that in your own introduction about about that question. So I wondered if you could reflect on that experience that yourself and a lot of the authors in this book have around those questions of genetics and the the huge amount of discrimination, whether it's conscious or unconscious in the medical system in particular, which seems to, you know, it it comes up so often, it's it's really quite uh, depressing how often it does in these stories. Yeah, I think almost every story, actually. Yeah, Um, yeah, look... I think ultimately disability is true, like it's truly seen as a, as a negative and a deficit. And it's most, well, actually all parents are really told that they should be screening for disability. So that's ultimately what's happening is that in the medical world, disability is screened and terminated. That's, you know, that's, so which can be very hurtful when you are a person with disability and you have the potential to pass on your disability that, you can see it as that they want to screen for somebody like you and it can feel, as I said, hurtful. But it, it doesn't come with, I guess, such a, a big question and a big subject and it's not something that I took lightly. I have the chance to pass on my disability as a 50% chance and it's tricky because I am proud of my disability and I wouldn't want to not be disabled because it's brought so much richness to my life and enabled me to write this, you know, help create this book and write this chapter in this book. But ultimately I know what world we live in as well and I know how much discrimination I have faced in the past and I don't want that for my kids. I also know that there is just so many physical barriers in the world but ultimately it's the world that ought to change. It's not me. And so I chose to have children and luckily I did choose to have children because it's been the most amazing experience and, you know, I have two incredible kids. And so I think it's it's a really big question and I think within the book we do discuss it in all different ways. But ultimately, you know, the experiences, say, of Brent Phillips, who's deaf, him and his partner are both deaf. When they were in the hospital, their child had the hearing test uh, that's screened. And the nurse at that moment, there actually wasn't even an interpreter offered. So they couldn't even understand the nurse. They had to lip read the nurse what she was saying and she um, was overjoyed and congratulated them and just so excited that their child wasn't like them and their child wasn't deaf. But Brent is like um, extremely proud to be deaf. It's his community, um, it's his identity. And so for someone to congratulate you at that moment that your child is not like you, it's, it's very hurtful. And ultimately it feeds into wider issues around people's beliefs on uh, whether you have the ability to be a good parent. And so often parents, you know, for instance, in the book, parents that are blind, a social worker was called straight away because of the, the feeling that they they didn't have the ability to parent. And also parents that have intellectual disability, um, more than 60% of these parents have their children taken from them before they are offered any support or education to be parents. And 
for any parent. It's a big task to be a parent. Like it's it's something that we have to learn and something that takes time day by day. And for parents with intellectual disability, there are added complexities. And yet, for some reason, support and education is not offered to these parents. Instead, child protection is often rung without giving these parents the chance. So that's, uh, I think, a, you know, a wider issue as well. Yeah, I'm really glad that you did capture the story of people with an intellectual disability because, it, you know, it's very harrowing to read about the fact that someone's had their child taken from them and that they haven't been able to have that relationship with their child that they would have liked. It's kind of really hard to imagine and it's just so terrible to, to hear that it's so widespread in terms of that experience. And one of the things that as you mentioned in that story about being congratulated for not having a child who was deaf, the author talks about being part of this very proud deaf culture, Brent Phillips, and saying that, you know, this was this is something that many deaf people will be familiar with, maybe less so the people outside the deaf community. But once you read that chapter, you start to understand how interesting and wonderful that deaf culture must be for people who are in it. And he writes to say that he signed up their child to Auslan and, you know, they were speaking Auslan with their child from day one, essentially teaching them from birth, you know, sign language. So, you know, it was really interesting to hear about that particular story that you raised there and his partner, Mel, and how they navigated these challenges when they're both deaf and couldn't hear certain things and how they managed it. I guess it just brought home to me that even in these circumstances where perhaps two of the parents, both partners, have a disability, there are always ways to innovate and be creative. And as they say, they're fiercely independent as well and that they would never want that taken away from them and that for their children to ever feel like their parents were reliant upon them and clearly they're not. Um, so I just really loved that story because it did draw out those issues that perhaps someone without a disability might make assumptions about, which is, oh, well, the other partner clearly must pick up all the load and do much more than the other person. And in these stories, clearly it's not the case that there's a major unequal distribution of parenting. There's kind of really interesting and different and creative ways that both parents manage the day-to-day -day life of being a parent. Yeah, absolutely. And like, as I say in my introduction, I, as, as a disabled person, you have constantly had to be flexible and, and creative and um, adaptable because, you know, for instance, when I go to a building and I haven't been there before, I have to navigate. How am I going to get into this building? If it's inaccessible, what are the ways I can get inside? And so you have to be a creative thinker, which actually feeds into parenting just really well. And so I actually think as disabled people, we are set up to be great parents. And I think you're right. I think that this book really shows that we just, we do, we, we've got this and that we can parent. We do it really well. Yeah, and I think that many people who don't have a disability or don't have experience knowing someone with a disability would benefit from this book in the sense that they can get a far deeper understanding of how parenting can be as well, the experience of parenting. And, and I wanted to bring in what you've said about accessibility. That's something that 
Leifa brought up, and I really enjoyed that part of her essay, and it obviously comes up in many people's essays and experiences, is this issue that the world is generally inaccessible to people with a disability and even um, as Leifa brings up to parents with big prams trying to get on certain trams or trains, trying to get into different places. And she brings up in her essay the fact that she realised how much parents expect suddenly to have this level of accessibility that disabled people have been wanting and needing since time immemorial. And then suddenly mm. they're kind of faced with similar issues and the interesting dynamic that that brought up for her and the kind of accommodations that are made for parents, disabled parents, um, but also just parents in general and how she benefited in a way from the fact that she'd yeah. become a parent. <laughs> yeah, I found that like her face was so interesting in that way because, yeah, she said that she has chronic fatigue and she said that whenever she said that she was, you know, not, uh, I guess, you know, really tired or, um, yeah, just, you know, not, I guess, at that moment, you know, needing more time to, to be in bed. And yet when she decided to be a parent and had children and then she felt like she was actually, was in a way, more accessible because people understood that when you're a parent you're you're tired where she's kind of like reflecting and saying why isn't that the case for when you have a disability and yet when you have children that's suddenly acceptable that you're um tired or needing more support so I thought that was really an interesting uh, reflection yeah and it certainly brought up in her piece, the issues that people with those whole body, whole system, chronic illnesses and mm. disabilities experience when you're, you know, completely debilitated at times and you can't mm. even leave the house, which some people with severe chronic fatigue and even mild to moderate chronic fatigue can have is this general incapacity and, and unpredictable incapacity at times to be able to do things. And mm. she talks about that shame that she had and the, the issues that she had facing up to what her worth was as a human when she couldn't financially contribute and when society expects that your value is based on your career and your identity and what kind of supposed productive activities you're doing to to further society or your family and you know she was grappling with these issues and writes about her coming to grips with the fact that it's okay to ask for help and that being part of a community that supports each other and nurtures it, each other is actually something to be very proud of and that you don't need to be tied to your capacity to earn lots of money. And, yeah, I just really yeah. found that particularly interesting, her shift between this yeah. feeling of deep kind of shame and reflection and what am I contributing to a point where she felt that she supported so widely by so many different people that that's something to be proud of and I know that comes up in other stories as well that it's like a village that looks after each other and that it's something that benefits someone who's disabled but it also benefits the community in a way. Yeah I feel like parenting just shouldn't be an isolating experience but often it is. I think within these stories, it really proves that it is important to have community and to have a village around you, and that's okay. There shouldn't be any shame in that. I think, um, you know, Leaf has uh, really enjoyed her story because it showed that by being someone that had a disability, that 
she was actually, you know, already used to that negotiation around what her day looks like and that flexibility and change and um, due to having disability that some days can look really different. And so when you have a child, that is exactly what happens. <laughs> so she was, you know, very, very used to that life. And um, but I really like that reflection in her piece. Yeah. Another also interesting element to these stories, which I think is drawn out in Jacinta Parsons' essay, um, anyone listening to Triple R would know Jacinta well as a former broadcaster here and now broadcasting on ABC Melbourne. And, you know, she talks about having an autoimmune disease and that clearly brings up many different issues for young women and many young women, that's when they'll get an autoimmune disease is in their late 20s or early 30s. And that's the childbearing years for those who choose to have children. And I found her story particularly harrowing in a way because, you know, she was reflecting on her body's capacity to even hold a child and bear a child. And she even, you know, was, I guess, faced by those issues from her own, you know, medical team who remarked upon, I think, after her second child, that this surely has to be the last one because your body just can't really take it anymore. And other women bring this up when they're talking about bearing children and and this idea of their body as being potentially broken, but then they kind of discover that, no, it's a very resilient thing. So I wondered if you could reflect on that, both personally but also the stories that you read and brought together. Yeah, well, I think, again, I look at, like, the society belief around disability and it's very medicalised disability. And so for a lot of my life I had surgeries growing up. I was a wheelchair user all through high school and primary school at different times and so from a very young age, that was the way that my disability was spoken about. And generally not to me, but about me. And so it was always, how do we fix the problem? How do we you know, get rid of disability? I think that feeds into the belief that my body is medicalised, my body ought to be fixed, and therefore maybe I can't be a parent. Maybe my body can't hold you know, my baby. And it's a really hard thing to, to come up against. And throughout my pregnancy, I was constantly, and I, I think a lot of parents can relate, that you, you constantly worry, like, how am I going to keep this baby alive if something happens? But it's, it's extra hard when you then go into the hospital to seek support or, and you're told by a medical professional that you shouldn't have any children. I had that after my first I uh, was told, it's, you know, don't have any more. Why would you do that? It's too much. You can't do it. So when you're told all of that, that information, that's, you trust medical professionals and you look at it and you go, well, actually, now that I've got two kids and my pregnancy was great, my birth was great, really, um, considering that actually, you know, I can be a parent and my body is capable of being a parent. And thank goodness I didn't listen to you because mm. now I have my second child. I think a lot of experiences were very similar within the book. I'm so glad you yeah, could reflect on that for us because it's kind of staggering to think that this happens so consistently, um, but they're not so surprising when you think about the types of discrimination that, for example, happens for women every time they you know, seek medical care and the types of gaslighting they receive. So it's, um, it seems like there is a common general culture around um, how women in particular experience the medical system. And, um, mm, absolutely. 
Yeah, and I wondered, you know, you do, as as I mentioned at the top of the interview, you do bring in so many different experiences and, you know, there's an experience of Micheline Lee who is Malaysian-born and she um, is a, a disabled person who adopted and that's another very different experience but she once again had to prove to adoption agencies that her disability was quote-unquote mm-hmm. mild enough to be able to parent and you know that was another really sad state really to think that that's how adoption agencies are screening for couples is that you have to be some kind of perfectly healthy individual who's who doesn't have these quote-unquote impairments it is really quite confronting to read yeah absolutely yeah Micheline's story is just I yeah like I just I'm affected by it every time I read it it's just well it's so well written and Mm. Yeah, just talking about that, like it's just, it's so hard, isn't it, that she had to pretend and, you know, she made sure that when she had the agency, the adoptive agency come and visit to check that they were suitable parents, that she, you know, she had to have all the vegetables cut up so that they didn't see the the way she cuts up the vegetables and Yes, it was just this constant weight around pretending she even had to, you know, she had friends that came around and she had to inform them that they also had to pretend. Now, you know, she's got a child that's now an adult and speaks, you know, about her experience and, she, she, as she, you know, she's a great parent. And so to think that we have to pretend is just, yeah, it's discrimination, isn't it? Yeah, Truly. absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, completely. And just finally, I wanted to, to close out the discussion talking about the parents in the book who are, neurodivergent and also um, some who have, you know, mental health conditions and challenges themselves, because that was also a really different experience to others. But it also seemed to be quite transformative and showed the different ways that families can be together and how they navigate their own challenges, their own sensitivities, perhaps to sound or to stimulation and also their own brilliances, you know, their kind of obsessions. And there's a, a musical family and how they kind of come to realise that their quirks that they had, um, not realising that they were on the spectrum, were actually something to be embraced and that would make their family wonderfully unique. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Nat Barch and Jeremy Hopkins are incredible Melbourne musicians and been touring for a long time and, and playing and composing incredible music. And, yeah, for a long time they didn't realise that they were autistic and it was actually due to having their child that they reflected and realised that actually, yeah, this is what's going on and that their child also uh, is autistic. And through, I guess, getting to know themselves better and through embracing their autistic identity, they now, yeah, just feel really proud and have made their house fit them and their world fit them. And it's a really great story because I think it's a, it's a new identity for, for Nat and, and Jeremy. So it's, um, it's just great to see how that, that can change your world for the better once you start mm. realising who you are. 
Absolutely. I know we're running out of time, Eliza, but I just wanted to, I guess, give you a chance to to mention anything that, you know, clearly we wouldn't have covered pretty much half of what's in the book because it is a really deep book and it covers so many different experiences. But just from your perspective as the editor of the book and having met so many different parents with a disability and people who clearly would be inspiring to you and very much inspiring to me, I just wondered whether you could offer some of your personal reflections and what might have stuck out to you personally when bringing together this book and putting on your editor's hat what kind of things that you're glad might have come through in this book and what you hope that others might get from this book, whether they're disabled, whether they're parents, what you're hoping might come from this. Yeah, look, I think these are human stories. They're just really interesting stories. And I think, you know, it's just really interesting to understand, like, how do parents that are deaf know that their children's crying in the night? How do parents, two parents that are blind take their children to the park? You know, those kind of human questions that I just find so intriguing and interesting. It also shows that these parents are extremely capable, incredible parents, and I hope that it debunks some of the myths and misconceptions around parenting because there still is just so much discrimination. I hope that it provides education, especially for the medical system. I hope that maternal health nurses read this, maternity wards and hospitals widely because that's where the attitudes really need to shift. It's the first point when you give birth. And a lot of the time, as I said, child protection is wrong without providing educational support. Discrimination is um, huge. Social workers are called. And um, just really just discrimination, constant discrimination. So that's really where I want to see the shifts and just also widely in society. But ultimately... I just hope that there, you know, there might be a person out there that has a chronic illness or who's deaf, blind, has a disability, neurodiverse, and is thinking, can I be a parent or should I be a parent? Because they may have been told throughout their life that no, they shouldn't. And I hope that this book really reaches those people and shows that yes, you can parent and that you you will make an incredible parent. And so I just, I really hope that it reaches those people ultimately. I hope so too and um, I agree that it's also such a great educational tool for the medical profession uh, in general but for everyone in society so I just really um, take my hat off to you and to say thank you for doing it because this is really a a really immense contribution and uh, I know that it will create a number of conversations just like this one um, but hopefully it sparks off conversations in the playground and in cafes and where parents meet but also between partners who are thinking about this issue and and or people who are even considering becoming a single parent and what that might look like for Mm -hmm. them so thank you so much Eliza for taking the time to share this with us and also to share your personal story as well. well thank you so much for having me I've just been chatting there with Eliza Hull, who is the editor of this book that's just been released today called We've Got This, Stories by Disabled Parents. It's been released through Black Ink. And Eliza is a contemporary musician, a disability advocate and writer. And um, you can follow her on social media as well. And uh, make sure you do pick up this book. It is really wonderful. And I don't say that lightly. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. I'm really honoured to have onto the program Emeritus Professor Marco Pavlician. And uh, Marco is and has been based at Monash University in the School of Languages, Cultures and Linguistics, particularly his expertise being Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian studies. And Marco is joining me now to talk about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which obviously has um, has shocked the world in terms of, I guess, the extent to which Russia has uh, sought to invade Ukraine and target several of Ukraine's major cities, uh, not just those kind of outerlying areas that had been the subject of discussions and a great amount of global diplomacy efforts. Uh, So I'm really glad to welcome Marco onto the program now to discuss uh, this issue more broadly, and particularly its political and historical context, but also what is happening right now in Ukraine, um, certainly from the perspective of Ukrainians as well. So thank you so much, Marco, for taking the time to chat with us. Glad to speak, Amy. Now, Marco, um, I think that this is something, perhaps an area with which Australians many Australians may not be as familiar with in terms of um, global political history and um, political crises unless they are um, fortunate enough to have, you know, been around Ukrainian culture or to understand Russian history. So I wonder if we can uh, set the scene for people who may not have the understanding, the kind of... um, you know, basic level of understanding of this conflict and its origins and, and the kind of historical considerations that are at play at the moment as well. So in terms of uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin, the president, and his decision to invade Ukraine, I mean, I know it's a big question to ask first up, but um, could you share with us, you know, the historical uh, significance and background to this invasion and where the Soviet Union and and Russia today fits into this? Yes, you're right. It's it's a big question. Uh, The Soviet Union uh, collapsed in 1991. The manner of that collapse was that after a coup that attempted to restore the old Soviet order that had been challenged by the more liberal Uh, Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, Uh, the Russian Federation, then led by uh, Boris Yeltsin, declared itself independent of the Soviet Union. And that declaration of independence was followed by declarations of independence by Ukraine, Belarus, and then soon uh, the remaining uh, republics of the a union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So the USSR in that way ceased to exist. Uh, 15 uh, independent nation states came into being. In the case of Ukraine, there followed uh, a referendum in December 1991 uh, in which well over 90% uh, of the respondents voted in favor of an independent Ukraine. And then uh, for the first decade or so, uh, while confronting 
post-Soviet issues of uh, economic adjustment to a, a, a capitalist, liberal uh, uh, economic system and to uh, a new political system which was multi-party and uh, aspired to be democratic. In the course of that decade, uh, relations between Russia and Ukraine, though they weren't free of uh, occasional tensions uh, over economic matters, over, over issues like uh, the gas supply, were reasonably normal, the way that uh, relations are between, between uh, neighboring countries, which essentially respect each other, but uh, occasionally have tensions when their interests don't uh, overlap. And then uh, uh, Mr. Putin was elected president for the first time, and from that time onwards, the uh, relationship began to uh, to sour. Uh, the uh, Russian government began to recover some of its uh, habits of that it had displayed as as when it was you know the prime republic of the Soviet Union. Uh, tendencies to want to dominate and determine the internal policies and certainly the foreign policies of its next door neighbors began uh, to emerge. Um, attempts to ensure that friendly uh, heads of state uh, and heads of government were in place in neighboring republics began to uh, raise their heads, so to speak. Um, and then we began to see uh, the first of the uh, major confrontations between Russia and Ukraine. This, this was 2004. This was over um, an election, a presidential election, where two candidates, one essentially pro-Russian, another pro-Western, went to the people and the election was rigged in favor of the uh, pro-Russian candidate Viktor Yanukovych. So that uh, the rigging of that election was done with the assistance of what was called the Russian uh, election technologists, political technologists, uh, with the uh, collaboration of uh, various friends uh, of that uh, candidate within Ukraine. Now, this outraged the Ukrainian electorate. Many people um, gathered in the city center of, of Kiev for what came to be known as the, the Orange Revolution. And the Orange Revolution was an, an ongoing chain of protests which, which lasted for some months. And in the end, the confrontation ended with agreement that the election would be run again. It, it was run again, and the other candidate, the candidate who had won in the first instance, um, Viktor Yushchenko, came to power. Well, so that, that was a foretaste of, of uh, what was to happen uh, in, in much more acute ways 
later on. The second instance of such a conflict came in 2013-2014. By this time, uh, Yanukovych had been elected president in what were, on that occasion, reasonably fair uh, elections. Uh, he had been president for some time. Many were extremely critical of his rule, which was seen as uh, corrupt, uh, as uh, inclined towards uh, the same kind of of uh, autocracy, which at that time was evolving in in Russia, uh, as dismissive of human rights and and the rule of law, so there was a, a great deal of dissatisfaction uh, with Yanukovych, which came to a head when Yanukovych gave way to pressure from Vladimir Putin, and refused at the last minute to sign an association agreement with the European Union, something towards which Ukraine had been working for some time. Now, <clears throat> students in Kyiv who were immediately outraged by this turning away from the West, something that they particularly cherished, went out into the streets to protest and the police reaction to these protests was uh, brutal to the point where uh, the city as a whole was outraged and a chain of great demonstrations began at first against police brutality and against the violence exercised by um, the government and then growing in, in the scope uh, of its um, concerns to encompass everything that was wrong with the Yanukovych regime. It's, it's, it's links to criminality, it's um, corruption, uh, it's attacks on uh, the free press. So this became a general revolution which immediately was called the Euromaidan or the Revolution of Dignity, which was you know, it was peaceful at first, and then it evolved into in, into um, armed conflict in the street in response to uh, violent pressure from the authorities. Came to a head when uh, the government ordered uh, the shooting of. Uh, demonstrators, and about a hundred people uh, were killed by uh, snipers uh, in that revolution. And those those crimes against against the citizenry were were then the spark that that raised the anger of uh, the demonstrators to such a high pitch that um, Yanukovych saw no alternative but to uh, escape to Russia, leaving behind a kind of a power vacuum, uh, which, though it was filled fairly quickly because uh, the Ukrainian constitution was, was invoked, the person who was in charge of the parliament took on the responsibilities uh, of the, the president, 
uh, elections were called. But before, before any of this could happen, uh, Russia opportunistically seized Crimea uh, with the use of military men uh, without uh, insignia on their uniforms, um, people who were not identified, initially at least, with the Russian state. And similar, similar attempts were made uh, all across eastern and southern Ukraine to stir up the population in favor of um, uh, in favor of some form of reunion with Russia and certainly rejection of the government in Kyiv. Now, over almost the whole of this territory, these attempts were unsuccessful, but uh, in the east of the country, they gained the most traction. Uh, they uh, morphed into armed resistance, uh, which the Ukrainian military then tried to control. And uh, a hot war in eastern Ukraine evolved. That, that war uh, resulted in the end uh, in a small sliver of eastern Ukraine, parts of the so-called Luhansk and Donetsk oblasty or regions um, remaining under the control of uh, the uh, separatists, as we've come to call them, but in fact they were uh, not ideologically motivated separatists. These were rather proxies for uh, the Russian state. So in the, in the ceasefire that was achieved uh, in the very imperfect Minsk uh, agreements, uh, the, um, there was to be a process uh, of peace, the result of which would be uh, having uh, the occupied territories quasi-independent within Ukraine. Uh, this, however, was never implemented because the ceasefire never took full effect. Uh, the war settled down to an eight-year-long conflict uh, with uh, losses happening in, to human life and, uh, in uh, ones and twos every day, so that by now the whole conflict in the East has cost around 14,000 lives. Now, this conflict uh, has just escalated. The, the invasion by Russia is an escalation of that already existing uh, conflict. Yeah. yeah. I was just going to say, say um, um, oh, it seems I like I'm echoing on your end. Are you able to turn the volume down on your side a little bit? Thank you, Marco. Um, I was just going to say the this brings me to one of my you know burning questions, I guess, in terms of Russia and Vladimir Putin's uh, motivations for this particular invasion, not only just the timing of it and but also really the location of it and what his his stated motivations are, um, but what it seems like perhaps 
his true motivations are. And and I know it's something that's been of a great deal of speculation on the part of many people who didn't even think he would invade uh, as of a week ago or so. Um, but we did see Vladimir Putin recognise uh, the Donetsk and Luhansk areas as uh, people's republics, as um, breakaway states in Ukraine. And he said that he would be conducting this uh, so-called special military operation, which would seek to, quote-unquote, denazify uh, Ukraine and also demilitarise it. Now, all, everyone has said um, these aren't really true aims for obvious reasons. Um, number one, President Zelensky is Jewish and um, there isn't any kind of clear sign that there are Nazis within the government of Ukraine, although there are uh, right-wing, far-right-wing uh, ideological groups in every country, no doubt, and, and I'm sure that's the case uh, in Ukraine. It doesn't seem that that is a true reflection of the, the reality here. So I wonder if you could uh, potentially give us your insight and perspective on uh, Vladimir Putin's motivations for this invasion, given that we've now seen him attack not just these areas uh, that he's recognised as being independent, um, but also that he's really going for the capital, Kiev, and also other major areas, other major cities like Kharkiv, where he's really um, doubling down on his military efforts there. You know, what, to your, in your mind, is and are the, the true motivations of Vladimir Putin uh, based on the things that he's been saying and, I guess, the propaganda that he's been putting out? Yeah. Look, Amy, I think that the aims that uh, Putin originally had in um, manoeuvring the Minsk Accords to the uh, conditions which were inscribed into them uh, continue to hold uh, even now. And those objectives were uh, at that stage to control Ukraine um, to make it uh, simply part of a Russian sphere of influence, uh, restoring part of the um, scope uh, of Russian international force. Uh, Russia as a great power, Russia as a power that has the potential to uh, control the policies, particularly the foreign policies, uh, of its next-door neighbours as a kind of um, security buffer, uh, halting any inclination of those neighbours to look westward um, toward Europe or toward uh, NATO as they thought about their own identity as countries and as they thought about the sources of security that they might seek. Now, uh, I think that is still part uh, of his objective. That, that objective fits in with other parts of, 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 um, uh, parts of um, uh, Putin's plan. Uh, one is to create for himself a legacy uh, so that when, when finally he leaves the political stage, he will be seen to have been a great leader who, who restored Russia's 
preeminence in its region, particularly in Eastern Europe, um, perhaps even uh, a restorer of territories that were once part of the Soviet Union, indeed part of the part of the Russian Empire. So I think it, it's uh, it's interesting in this context to look at uh, Mr. Putin's speeches uh, of recent times, which are full of sense of the uh, glory of Russia, which in, in, in his view has been uh, degraded or humiliated in, uh, recent, um, in recent decades. And he is the restorer, as it were, of that uh, grandeur. Uh, of course, connected with this is the desire to demonstrate the force of Russia in contrast to the weakness of the West. And uh, this was, I believe, also uh, an objective to demonstrate that uh, an autocracy which is determined and forceful and muscular uh, like his own uh, would be able to set at naught uh, the efforts of NATO, weak, disunited, uh, unsure of its own values, um, frightened of offending uh, Russia, dependent upon Russia for key resources like uh, hydrocarbons. Um, so that <clears throat> these two goals are, are uh, interrelated, of course. And then there's there's the third goal because every dictator needs to uh, play to his audience in order to ensure that at every stage he can be seen to be winning, to be succeeding, to be achieving uh, new goals, to seem, in fact, invincible to his own people. So uh, I think this, too, has been one of the objectives uh, of Putin, to continue to project himself as a powerful leader who undoubtedly lords it over his uh, immediate uh, advisors, who is clearly in charge of the situation and who can surely determine uh, what happens in the international space uh, in his own region, but also in the world at large. So all of those things were to have been achieved by the subjugation uh, of Ukraine through the implementation of the Minsk Accords. And for a long time, and particularly in the end game just before the war, Mr. Putin believed that he could actually maneuver Western leaders uh, into the position where they would pressure Ukraine and, and President Zelensky to give Putin what he wants without necessarily going to war. Uh, and just to bring forward that, uh, uh, that, that pressure, Putin encircled Ukraine with, uh, with troops and armaments 
and they were in place. My original reading of the situation was that they were in place in order to function as a threat, a plausible, credible threat, which would be visible uh, to NATO and to the West uh, as a whole, uh, in order to persuade the West of the urgency of the uh, situation and of the need to make uh, Ukraine comply with Russia's plans for it. Now, when it became clear that this wasn't going to work, and I think it became clear after the two European leaders, after, after President Macron of France and uh, Chancellor Olaf Scholz of Germany visited uh, Putin in Moscow and then came to Kiev to report on, on their the, the substance of their meeting with the, the Russian leader. It is reported by parts of the Ukrainian press that the, the real message that they brought was that uh, Ukraine should give way on the terms of the, the Minsk Accords, which President Zelensky did not do. And it may well be this that was the trigger to the next steps, which were the, you know, the formal recognition of the Donetsk and Luhansk people's uh, republics, the delivery uh, of a speech in which uh, Ukraine was uh, described in terms much more radical than had previously been the case as a country run by a junta of drug addicts and neo-Nazis, and that immediately then preceded the, um, uh, the invasion that everyone had feared. Mm. I was just going to say, clearly, that President Zelensky is still pushing for a number of things, um, including membership of the European Union and membership of NATO two things which it's clear that Russia doesn't want to happen. And uh, obviously they're still not members of those organisations or uh, blocks. So, you know, we haven't seen movement necessarily in that regard, but we have seen since this invasion huge amounts of uh, support, a lot more than I think even others were expecting in terms of military aid to Ukraine in order for Ukrainians to be able to defend themselves uh, and also not just through their military but through civilians who have now been conscripted to serve. So it is interesting to see, you know, how that has developed and also how Germany in particular has, you know, stepped up uh, and started to change their foreign policy in quite radical ways, uh, investing more of their GDP in military spending from 1.4% to 2%. But also, you know, looking at that um, response, but bringing in also the Belarusian response, uh, which I found interesting as well over the weekend, seeing that not only has Belarus been this um, base for which Russian soldiers could be stationed and, as you say, provide this credible threat, but they've also now voted to give up their non-nuclear status uh, in order to be able to host nuclear weapons potentially from Russia. 
so I wondered when you were talking about Ukraine and um, and also these other neighbouring states and their identities and their um, involvement in Russia's sphere, uh, where does Belarus sit in this? And and also even Ukraine as well, culturally, in, and their identities. Mm. Yes. <clears throat> That's a very interesting series of, of questions. Let, let me um, uh, try to begin uh, with your um, initial observations um, about the uh, change in the nature of the Western response to this situation. Um, I think the... the first major surprise to uh, the world at large and to uh, Western commentators and analysts has been uh, the strength uh, of the Ukrainian military uh, response and the extent to which um, the country at large has uh, manifested its uh, support for its armed forces and its willingness to self-organize in order to, to defend its territory. Um, this has simply disproved those theories that you know, Russia, being militarily more powerful than Ukraine, could um, be in Kyiv within 48 hours and uh, bring about regime change in, in, in Ukraine um, very smartly indeed. This hasn't happened. And uh, as a result, uh, the West's attitude towards Ukraine has changed markedly. Um, this has been a consequence in part uh, of the fact that unlike Afghanistan, where, where the West was involved in supporting a regime which, after the West's withdrawal, uh, proved uh, to be unable to sustain itself. Uh, this was clearly a different situation. Um, Ukraine was fighting the fight of its life. And uh, this, of course, encouraged the West to be willing uh, to support such a struggle. At the same time, one, one shouldn't underestimate the personal factor and the result the, and the consequences of the extremely forceful rhetoric of President Zelensky, who has proved to be uh, a person able to influence the West, and in fact, in, in some respects, to shame the West for uh, having been so weak and so late in its uh, responses to Ukraine's pleas for support. Uh, to retain its sovereignty and and independence, so uh, Western uh, the Western reaction is now uh, much more powerful and forceful, and um, you know, the United States and and um, NATO as a whole and the member states of NATO separately are supporting Ukraine with defensive weapons, uh, enabling it to. Um, increase the effectiveness of its defense against uh, Russian Federation forces. Uh, and one of the latest developments, as, as you point out, has been uh, the, the new stance adopted by Belarus. Belarus, until, until um, 
you know, literally day, a few days ago, has simply been a location where, from which uh, the Russian Federation has launched some of its missile strikes and some of its some of it, uh, its tank attacks. But now, um, Mr. Lukashenko has uh, announced that his country will participate in the war effort on its own uh, behalf, thus uh, expanding the countries at mm. war with Ukraine from just Russia to Russia and Belarus. We're going to have to finish it up there, Marco, unfortunately, because uh, we've just run out of time. But um, I really appreciate your time today, and I'm sorry we had to just uh, finish up on Belarus, which I know is uh, a very complex and interesting, evolving situation. Uh, but I really am very grateful to you for explaining such a complicated situation to us, and hopefully that's helped us understand uh, the situation better. Thank you very much, Amy. I really appreciate it. I've just been chatting there with Marco Pavlishin from Monash University, and we were just talking about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.